Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme recorded live. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are up against a wall with tales told live on stage, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho Penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now we go balls to the wall, recorded on June 29th, 2021. Our featured storytellers, Amanda Rich, Kate Beltane, and Serafina Thunderpussy went all out. At late night, we don't need no thought control, but we'll take some dark sarcasm straight up. It's Late Night Stories. Amanda Rich. Okay, fun fact, I just have to share with you guys that I came out to my mom hiking on that hill right over there. I'm not going to talk about that. It didn't go well, but um, (laughs) this is not the hot girl summer I imagined. (laughs) Vava was a living legend. She was, at 93 years old, still living alone, And she was like tiny and tough and wiry and she had this white hair that stuck all up in different directions because she cut it herself. Vava was very old world. She was born in Portugal and she moved to the United States in her 30s, was widowed shortly after, and she continued to work up until her 70s. And when I say work, I mean She took care of an apartment building, which looked like, in her 70s, on her hands and knees on the roof, hammering in the shingles. Vava would never learn to drive. She would never eat at a restaurant. And she was so stubborn. I don't even know if stubborn is the right word. Like, she would walk to the grocery store every day, rain, snow, sleet. Nobody could convince her to get in the car to give her a ride. She'd have a sack of potatoes and a sack of apples, and she would never take a ride from anyone. And she maybe had trust issues. She would say things like, keep your eye open. You can't trust nobody. You can only trust Vava. So when Vava fell and broke her hip, we decided to move her in with us. Vava was not my grandmother. She was my partner's grandmother. But she had raised my partner, and they were very close, closer even than her mother. The problem was that Vava lived in New Haven, Connecticut, and we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we weren't sure exactly how to get her home with us. We didn't think that she would go through TSA security and sit on an airplane. And we also didn't have an ID for her. Her last issued passport was 1967. No driver's license. We couldn't find a social security card. We couldn't even find a birth certificate. We weren't even sure if she had a birth certificate because she was born in like 1915 in this village in the middle of very rural Portugal that was basically, it's basically a ghost town now. 
we thought about road tripping, but we didn't think she'd want to stay in a hotel. And she had a very particular diet. Like every morning she drank black coffee and ate butter cookies. And every night she ate boiled potatoes and a glass of red wine with a spoonful of sugar stirred in. <laughs> so my brilliant idea was let's rent a 30 foot RV and we can pack all of Vava's stuff in the, I forget what they call it, the rear suite like a mattress and her linens and dishes and things that were important to her. And then we can live in the whole front of the RV that still has two bedrooms and a kitchen and we can you know, make the black coffee and the boiled potatoes and we can kind of live normal life. And what we described to Vava, because she'd never seen an RV, as a truck with a little house built on it. <laughs> we planned a southern route because it was the middle of January we had reasonable stops, so we thought it would take about four days. It's about 2,000 miles. And we brought along my sister-in-law for an extra driver slash Evolva handler, moral support. <laughs> I, however, ended up doing most of the driving, partly because I think in a past life I was like a long-haul trucker and I love driving, <laughs> but also because I... I'm either stupid or I have no fear, I'm not sure which, but I just go all in and, you know, I was like, I'll be fine, I can drive this thing. Well, the first problem was we hit a snowstorm right out of New Haven and like zero degree visibility, the RV's fishtailing, the roads are terrible, and we only made it about 100 miles before we had to pull over, not at our scheduled stop, and we were going to spend the night in a Walmart parking lot. Well, about three in the morning, the lights kind of flickered and the heat stopped working. And if we turned the engine on, that it would blow cold air, but it would only blow hot air if we drove around the parking lot. So we had to make this decision if we were gonna slide down the freeway or freeze to death in the Walmart parking lot. And of course we chose the freeway, but we could only go like five miles an hour. And there was a 1-800 like help desk that we could call, but they didn't open until the next morning at like eight o'clock. So we had several hours of very slowly moving down the icy road before we could get a hold of someone. And this is about the time we realized we knew next to nothing about RVs. The man on the help desk line had me find all these different boxes with switches and I was flipping them on and off and he was kind of telling me what I was doing, but it was basically like resetting the system and we should be good to go. And so we just sallied forth. But night number two, same thing happened. Heat's gone, flicker, flicker, something's wrong. And so after just very few hours of sleep, once again, we hit the road and kept moving. So help desk tells us, well, we reset those things, so maybe it's the battery. It's getting drained too fast, and maybe you need a new battery. And we're like, great, well, you know, how, what, when, where do we do that? And he's helped us identify a like auto zone in Memphis um, but of course it was pouring rain in Memphis and so I mean bless this man who helped me change not one but two RV batteries I was holding this umbrella we were like ankle deep in water in the parking lot and we were still optimistic though like this is gonna be the thing and we're gonna be good to go but you probably already know where this is going night number three <laughs> And I don't know anything about RVs, but at this point I'm like, I think there's an electrical issue. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And this is where the help desk becomes largely unhelpful and they suggest we drive back to New Haven and switch out the RV. <laughs> we're more than halfway, so we're like, oh hell no. And then he said, well maybe if you find an actual RV campground where you can plug in, it will keep the electrical going and you won't have a heat problem. So, sorry it gets fuzzy here. I don't know if it was like Arkansas or, oh, we can just call it Ar Arklahoma. <laughs> we found this campground with a spot and we plugged in and uh, we had seen this little gas station at the edge of the campground and my sister-in-law was gonna go get a cold beer. She's like, do you want anything? I'm like, yes, give me like a shot of whiskey or something because I'm stressed. This is a fucking nightmare. Oh, shit. Okay, great. Okay, I can just edit that out later. <laughs> so, she does not come back with a cold beer and a shot of whiskey. She comes back with a question. She says, have y'all ever heard of a dry county? Because <laughs> apparently there's places in the fucking world where you can't buy alcohol. Doesn't matter if it's a Sunday after four or Tuesday, never, never. And so we uncorked the last bottle of red wine and we were like, fuck it. We are going balls to the wall. We are not stopping, we're not sleeping. We just need to get to Albuquerque, we don't care. And you might be wondering like, how was Vava doing during all this? Uh, meh. <laughs> uh, we could, you know, maintain the routine and the coffee and the potatoes and the red wine with a spoonful of sugar, but she didn't ever want to take a walk. We kept asking, like, Baba, do you want to pull over and take a walk? She walked every day. We knew how important it was to her. So when we were somewhere around Amarillo, when she said she wanted to take a walk, we were like, oh, yeah, sure. We pulled the RV over in this rest stop in the middle of the desert, and we took a walk. We bundled up because it's still freezing cold. But she didn't stop walking. We had crossed the parking lot. We were heading towards the on-ramp, and we're like, Baba, we need to turn around. And she's like, no. She's like, I'm getting, I'm going to that road and I'm catching a bus back home. Baba, <laughs> like, oh, that's not a road, that's I-40, there's no bus. We are four hours from home, like we just have to, we just have to get through it. And needless to say, the last four hours were the hardest. We were all so tired when we finally got home that Baba tried to eat this little colored napkin. She thought it was a slice of cake, <laughs> just to give you an impression of how we were just and we were all kind of at that level, and we went to bed even though it was like 4 o'clock and slept. Um, and yeah, Vava, she lived with us until right before her 95th birthday where she passed away peacefully and comfortably in our home. She really lived balls to the wall to the very end. I've never met anyone quite like her, so fierce, so incredible. And I'm so honored that I got to spend a little bit of the journey with her, even if it was just a little bit stressful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Kate Beltane. Thanks, Jody. Um, yeah, Kate Butane Beltane, the word failure is not in my vocabulary. Um, I go balls to the wall on a daily basis. It's not always wise, like uh, seeing my boss do something I don't like, and I'm like, I'm gonna tell him he's a fucking idiot. Right. Maybe not. Maybe don't don't do that. Um, 
But no, really, when you go balls to the wall, um, there's a chance that you're going to fail, right? Or you might succeed. You might get what you want. Um, you never know. It's a risk. So when I was 16 years old, I left Oregon to become an exchange student in Hungary. Um, I, I don't know why I willingly signed myself up for this, but I fucking did. Uh, so I did it. And I didn't know some things when I left. I didn't know some words. I didn't know what fascists were. I didn't know what neo-Nazis were. Uh, I didn't know what Vaitse means, which is toilet, and that's very important as well. Uh, and while I was in Hungary, there, were there was political unrest. Um, there were protests in the street, uh, like protests that I had never seen before. We didn't, I had never seen protests that never ended. Uh, and they went on for months and months and months. And the other thing that I saw were these people wearing armbands, right? And, and the armbands had the Hungarian flag on them with the Hungarian crown. And as a 16-year-old, with, with my 16-year-old eyes, what I saw were proud Hungarian people fighting for their country and fighting for what they believed in. Um, now, that, that turned out not to be the case. What it turned out to be was a bunch of neo-Nazis trying to... Oh, Right, take over, take over the country. And eventually they were able to um, remove the government and put in, put in a fascist-leaning um, fascist government. And as I came, when I came home from this experience, I unpacked it a lot. And I was like, what was I seeing? You know, because I, I, I saw these people with armbands. I saw these protests, and I didn't understand. And so I dove into this of what was this? And one of the things that I found uh, was the rise um, in, in persecution of, of marginalized people. So one of the stories that really um, set me on fire was a, a gypsy village. I'm going to call them Roma from here on out, but Roma are called gypsy. So it was a Roma village, and uh, neo-Nazis had surrounded the entire village, thrown Molotov cocktails into the homes of the people, and then gunned, up, gunned down the families as they were leaving. And I could not understand how this was happening, right? Hungary's in the EU. Why the fuck was this not being stopped? Why wasn't the Hungarian government doing anything about this? Like, fucking put pressure on them. Um, and so at 20 years old, I decided that I was gonna fucking stop this. Um, <laughs> balls to the wall. Um, so I decided that I was going to make a documentary. Now, I had have no film experience whatsoever. I don't know how to make a documentary uh, at all. But I decided that that's what needed to be done. So I'm in college in Indiana at a small liberal arts school called Earlham College. And um, no Earlhamites here. Yeah, OK. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I went up to every single film student, um, you know, and I started with like the most talented film student and tried to convince him to come join me, right? Like, come do this project with me. Um, and, you know, he, he told me to fuck off, uh, which was, I think, the appropriate response to his, you know, he was like, I admire you, but this is dumb. Um, and so I just went down the list of all the film students. Uh, and I, there was one who, I, who I'd seen on campus, and I really did not want to sign up. Uh, with this person, but I was desperate. And the first time that I ever saw, I love Zoe now, she's a very good friend, fantastic. Uh, but the first time I saw Zoe, uh, she was wearing Birkenstocks with socks, um, floral, like overall things, mismatched earrings, um, 
and was singing to herself as she was crossing campus. And my first thought was like, is that Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter? You know, like that was, you know, and that's her, that's her. She's, I mean, that's Zoe. She's going to do her own thing. Um, but she was artistic and, and she knew how to operate a camera. Um, and I think she was naive enough to listen to my bullshit. Um, and so she signed up with me and I was like, yes, I've got someone with me. We're going to go do this. Um, we didn't have any money, so we had to <sighs> beg, borrow, steal, you know, um, not really. But we applied for grants. We, we talked to friends. We asked family members. We saved money from our jobs. And in the end, we had about $1,000 saved, which is not a lot of money. Um, but for Hungary, it'll get you through a summer. You're totally good. Um, and so we had our money. We had the film equipment. We had a plan. Um, and we took off. Uh, and... I, we got this great footage. We met with people who were survivors of concentration camps, um, Jewish leaders, Jewish community members. We took videos of um, just everything around there. You could see like dirty Jew written on the side of building in Budapest. And so we just documented this dichotomy. And we didn't focus on neo-Nazis um, because we didn't think that neo-Nazis would like invite us to a picnic or anything. Um, but we knew that we could, we could reach these other marginalized communities. And so we focused on them and the impact um, that the rise of fascism and, and the rise of neo-Nazis has on marginalized communities. And so that's what we really focused on. We got this great footage. I was super proud of it. Um, and, you know, we're, we've got a few weeks left, and we decide that we're going to wrap it up. We're going to go celebrate. We're going to take a day off. Um, and we're going to go to the Budapest Pride Parade. Uh, now, Zoe's from Seattle. I'm from Portland. Like, this shit's going to be a party. Um, and we're very excited. And uh, so the morning of, we get up. We're uh, about to take off, and Zoe can't get her fucking shit together. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so we miss the bus. And at this point, I'm like, we're fucking 40 minutes late for the Pride Parade. Like, we're in Eastern Europe. We don't know what's going on. I want to fucking be here. Can we go? Um, like, I don't want to miss the parade. Fucking 40 minutes late because Zoe can't get her shit together. Uh, eventually, we catch another bus. We take it into downtown Budapest, go to get on a subway station to get to the right places, and all the subways are shut down. So we can't actually take a subway. And I'm like, fuck, we got to fucking book it. We're going to have to run across Budapest. Like, let's go. Um, so we get up on the street. We're fucking running. I'm like stressing the fuck out. I'm like, we're not, we're not, we're gonna miss this. This is terrible. This is all we're gonna do today. Like, ugh. And as we're running, we see these barricades throughout the city. And they're almost like walls. They're these tall metal fences. Uh, you can't get under them. You can't get through them because the metal's too close together. You can see through them, but you can't push them over because they're too heavy. And there's barbed wire over the top. And I'm like, that's fucking weird. Why is that in fucking Budapest? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but we just keep going, and I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Maybe they're doing construction or something. I have no idea. And we keep running, uh, keep running, and these barricades are there the entire way. And eventually, we get to where the parade is being held. And it's at a place called Heroes Square. And there is this fucking massive group of people, hundreds of people. And I'm like, okay, all right. Like, I can breathe. We're here. This is going to be a party. All of my anxiety is gone. Zoe is smiling. We're both happy we made it. Um, and so we're standing around, but people are just kind of like standing there. And I'm like, what is going on right now? So I like turn and ask one of the guys standing next to me. And I'm like, hey, is this the pride parade? And I asked this in Hungarian. And he turns to me and he says, yes, the, the boozy, boozy, which means faggots. The faggots will be here soon. And I'm like, OK, that's weird. 
that's weird. You know, but like me, I don't know, okay. Um, and, I, and I say like, where, where are they gonna be coming? Where's the pride parade coming from? And he points to a subway station. And the crowd is surrounding those metal barricades that I told you about. There's a rectangle going all the way down into, the, into Hero Square. And this huge crowd of people is standing around those barricades. And in the middle of the barricade, there's a subway station. And I can see the steps of the subway station. And Zoe's got her camera rolling. She's standing next to me. She's smiling. Um, and I'm looking at the subway station, and I see people coming out of the subway station, and it's the pride marchers. They've got their flags. They're holding their loved ones' hands. And it's stony silence. They are not smiling. They are not laughing. They are standing there. And I don't understand what's going on. And then I turn around, and I look at this crowd of a few hundred people that I'm standing in. And I look and I see armbands. I see symbols on backpacks, on legs, um, tattoos. And I realize that Zoe and I are in a fucking crowd of neo-Nazis. We're on the wrong side of the wall. And someone somewhere is starting to throw eggs at the protesters. Someone's picked up small rocks and started throwing them at the, at the, the pride marchers as well. And they're booing and they're jeering. And I turn to Zoe and I say, Zoe, like, we're in a dangerous situation. We're in a crowd of neo-Nazis. Do you want to keep filming? And she looks at me and she's like, fuck yeah, I do. Um, and so balls to the wall, we fucking keep filming. And these neo-Nazis are staring at us, right? We're the only two fucking women in there and like, we're head to toe fucking rainbow. Um, <laughs> and we keep, we keep filming. So after this, we, we rush back to the States. We rush back to Indiana and back to our campus because we're like, we're going to fucking make this documentary and we're going to fucking tell the world about what's going on because this is fucking bullshit. Excuse my language. <laughs> A lot of F-bombs there. So we race back to campus and uh, we get into, inside the edi editing studio. I don't know how to work anything. It's always like the command center of that. And she gets it started. And I can see the images of the interview uh, interviews and I'm like, are the speakers working, Zoe? <laughs> we had no sound for any of our footage. So we fucking failed. I never, I never made the documentary. I couldn't do anything with that. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Kind of a fucking dumbass move, though. Like, check the fucking sound, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> one, one of the things, though, um, yeah, I've never gotten to tell that story until tonight. It's the first time that I've gotten to, you know, tell this story that I was so passionate about. So thank you guys for listening. But one of the things that has been the most surprising, um, surprising thing to me is I went over to Hungary to make this documentary, and I wasn't happy about it, right? I was not happy about um, the persecution of people, about the rise of fascism and neo-Nazis, but I almost expected it. I don't want to say that's not the right word. I wasn't okay with it, but I, I um, wasn't shocked by it. What's surprising to me now is that it's here. It's in the United States. I never thought I was going to see that. I never thought that would happen in the United States. Um, and that's, that's surprising. Um, so I fucking failed making a documentary, but they say that, you know, the only way you fail is if you stop trying. So I guess I'm just going to keep fighting against some fucking neo-Nazis. Yeah. <laughs>
Serafina Thunderpussy. It's always interesting to hear how people will introduce me because sometimes it's Serafina Thunderpussy. And then sometimes it's Serafina Thunder Pussy! Depends on the person, but. Fun fact about Minerva, she has a pet name for me. It's Scarafina Rumble Cunt, so. And I thought I would address the elephant. The three of us featured, we did not plan the black and white motif, but it's working out nicely. So balls to the wall! What a fitting theme for a drag queen, because balls are going to some sort of wall often. How many of you have heard of tucking? Okay, a few of you. More than I thought. I like to call it the monster mash because that's what it feels like. For those who don't know, tucking is the process where you tuck away the genitals you were given to give the illusion that you have genitals that you weren't given. So every drag entertainer approaches this differently. Some don't tuck at all, which is fine. There are no rules for drag. I have a very specific process how I do this. I have a tucking panty. I get it from Amazon, spoiler alert. And um, it does the job, hides things that I want hidden, and through the magic of foam, creates the illusion of my thunder pussy. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now that I have you all on the edge of your seat, as much as you want me to talk about tucking for 10 minutes, I am not going to do that. So um, I want to talk about my journey with drag, how I went from a, I'm just going to do it one time, to uh, I do it all the time now. Um, and I want to take you back to the beginning. I, I'm from Twin Falls, and that's where I grew up, moved away from college, moved back there, and I took a job with Planned Parenthood teaching sex ed, so I used to say, thank you, yeah, you can cheer us for that. So I would say I'm a sex educator by day and a drag queen by night, that was my tagline for a while. And I do different work now that's equally as important, it's just different um, for my day job. And uh, so it was about 2015, I was living in Twin Falls and there was no gay bar, there was no pride organization, no drag scene, no real sense of queer in an umbrella sense community. And so it kind of felt like we were all lonely islands, just kind of really needing community, needing one another, not always wanting to drive up here to Boise to fill community. So we started to gather in late 2015 and uh, decided to create a pride organization and do the first annual Magic Valley Pride, which happened in June 2016. And so in that process, we decided let's do a drag show, even though there weren't drag queens really in Twin, and none of us had experience except for Miss Ursula. And she um, has become a very important person in my life. She's kind of an enigma. I've never met a drag queen like her. I describe her house as, I call it Ur Ursula Shell. Like everything is artwork everywhere you turn in this house. Every time I go there, I'm like, let me snap a photo for Instagram, because this is just weird as hell and artistic. <laughs> She's just avant-garde and unlike anybody else. I just don't know how else to describe her. And she scooped us all up and said, I'm putting you in drag, and you're performing. Yeah. And uh, I had reservations. I have been 
a theater performer, a singer all my life, many years, but I had never done drag. Being gay, I had been around drag and knew about RuPaul's Drag Race, but I was like, this is not for me, probably because of toxic masculinity, but that's a different story. <laughs> and uh, she scooped us all up, and it was called Ursula's Hoedown. And uh, <laughs> yeah, fitting for Twin Falls. And uh, <laughs> so we all got ready together in the green room. It was this giant open room with just folding tables and chairs until we all got in there. And then there was makeup and mirrors and costumes and wig and, and glitter and just so much community. And it was one of the most affirming spaces I had maybe ever been in up to that point. And it was just incredible. And I wore this like empire-waisted black lacy dress, turquoise jewelry, this horrible, god-awful ombre wig. And uh, I put a drag mug, a beat, on my face for the first time ever. Never had had one. And I sang Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. I'm a singing drag queen, in case I forgot to say that. And I was like, I'm the most beautiful thing ever created. And I look back at photos, and it's like, girl, that's like Frankenfurter on a bad night on the corner. Like, whoo! But you couldn't tell me that that night, let me tell you. So um, I got the bug, and I was like, I'm going for it. Well, not at first. I, it took me about a year, so June 2017, and then I really went for it. And I was like, I'm doing this. I love the attention, the affirmation I feel for it. I get to sing more, perform more. I was doing it. And I uh, went all in and did season two of Boise's Next Drag Superstar. And that's where the story takes a turn because I was in the bottom two the first week, had to lip sync for my life against my best friend in the competition and was like fake out eliminated and got like very harsh criticism. And I was like, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. So I quit the competition and I quit drag. Very dramatic, very drag queen style. <laughs> and uh, I think that um, it's so interesting as I was preparing for this tonight, I don't think I had thought about the next three months after that moment super in depth and like how much self-reflection and introspection I had and what an impact it all had on me, but I had realizations that I was going all out in the wrong way. I was going balls to the wall for external validation and I don't know that that ever works. And so I had to really pause and go, why am I doing this? Like, why does drag matter for our community? Why does it matter as an art form to the world? Why does it matter to me? And um, I was like, you know what? I don't need to do this to create, create space for me to feel more special. Like, I need to do this to create space to show other people like me, particularly larger bodied, plus size fat individuals, that you can take up space and you can have voice, and you can feel sexy, and you can feel positive or neutral about your body, and it's beautiful, and we're part of the community and the world at large. And so I was like, this is why I want to do this. I want to model that and feel that and resonate that, and I want to fundraise and do activism. And so it was about six months, five, I don't know, four or five months later, I was like, I'm doing this again. And I started... Um, Ooh, I didn't, I think I was going to get emotional. I'm trying not to, woo. Um, 
It was probably your story about Budapest. Got me in my feels. Um, but uh, so I started, you know, going back out and I started to hear, like, taking the criticisms and, like, how can this propel me forward to get better at my art form and to build skills? And then I was like, I'm doing season three of Boise's Next Drag Superstar the right way. And I did, and I killed it. I didn't win, but that doesn't matter. I, um, I went back, and I was the last eliminated before the finale. I'm a lovely fifth alternate, as Alyssa Edwards says. We're twins. And she's endorsed my tongue pop, I'm just saying. Maybe I should do it on the mic for you all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ever since I had this renewed energy and, like, going full throttle balls to the wall, so many opportunities have come my way, like Tree Fort, Main Stage for Pride, hosting all kinds of things, just, and, and really having an impact, becoming the crown princess for the drag court, drag court here. And during COVID, the last 10 months, we've raised almost $30,000 for local charities. So, yeah. So, um... I guess to wrap this up, I'm like, what is the point of all of this? I mean, it's lovely stories, but um, I, I like to think, a lot of people I think think of drag as an armor, and I think we all think of certain hats or roles in our lives as armor, and like that gives us like fierceness and boldness, and we don't question our voices or our value when we step or put on certain armor, and um, I think what I've realized, thanks to COVID, um, is that you can untuck that feeling, um, that fierceness, that boldness, in any facet of your life. And I really feel like I have done that. And I have taken risks and done things I don't think I normally would have done before having that reflection and really embracing Serafina and that part of myself. And so. Yeah, I think that's the bow. That's the, that's the gift of the story, the point. But um, I want to leave you with one last quote by a famous drag queen, Alaska Thunderfuck 5000. <laughs> it's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. This is it. Anus thing is possible. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Also check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.